This is the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Now please welcome your host, Ed McKnight. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and today down the line from Wellington, we've got Leighton Roberts from Shearsies. Leighton, how are you going today? Yeah, good, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. Now, it's actually a bit of a funny story because Leighton and I actually grew up together in a tiny little town called Hawara, and our grandparents knew one another, and we spent many Christmases together. Yeah, a few good games of spotlight in there. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. So, you know, there's actually quite a few people when you when I go through my list of people who've had on the podcast who are from Hawara. Did you know that Frances Valentine, who I think of as, as uh, New Zealand's technology queen, is actually from Hawara as well? I did not know that, but I, I will definitely be bringing that up at some point in the future because I'm pretty proud of those Hawara roots. Yeah, no, well, you know, she actually grew up in a strawberry farm down Teratera Road, which was down the street from where I grew up. So I think that's uh, there were a lot of a lot of great people who grew up in Teratera Road. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you haven't heard of Sharesies and you're a young professional, you certainly will want to after hearing this episode because Leighton, along with six other co-founders, started Sharesies. And correct me if I'm wrong here, here, Leighton. Probably about was it back in 2015 now, or when was that? No, it was it was last year. So we um, we three of us went full time mm-hmm. from February last year, and uh, the others were working part time for that, and then. We were sort of all into it, launched the product in a closed beta at the end of May last year, yeah. So we're just over a year old. Yeah, definitely. And Sharesies aims to gamify or gamify the uh, investing experience or how you go about investing as a young professional. Uh, so tell, tell us a little bit about what, why you started Sharesies, uh, Leighton, and, and why you did that. Yeah, um, so starting Sharesies, um, it was for me a... Um, you know, the personal side of that is I just really wanted to be involved in starting a company and, and a company that had some meaning and could really help people um, with something that, you know, I might have some skills to offer with. Um, but the actual founding of Shearsies came from um, Sonia, who was uh, out there, uh, you know, a bit of a classic problem statement line, really, but she she had $50 she wanted to invest and realized there wasn't really a place to do it and certainly not a, a way, a place to make sense. So she had this idea um, of, you know, making a gamified app that made investing fun and accessible. And and, um, and we were working in two separate teams uh, leading up to the KiwiBank FinTech Accelerator, and um, I was intro to um, Sonia through a mate of ours, John, another one of the founders, um, uh, because I started this investment club when I was 17 and we each put $50 a week in, into an account. We still do now. Um, how many years later? 12, 12 years later or 13, gee, 14 years later. Um, and, and, uh, that was sort of a little bit of a proof point for Sonia, I guess that with $50, it, it could become a meaningful amount and it, it, it would be worth, um, Maybe maybe you could call that really early market validation. This could actually be good for people. Um, but anyway, we got talking. Um, we were working. Um, the two teams was um, Martin, Richard, um, and Brooke and I, and we hadn't really thought of anything yet. We were just in the brainstorming thing, and I think at the idea, our time was a way to help people with financial literacy uh, or, or some personal planning. Um, and then we got in a room, started talking about the different options on the table and then decided, well, let's bring this one through to a market validation phase um, because it was something we could all resonate with. And I, I think most people, um, well, and definitely something that came through really strong in our research was that most people want to be an investor. In fact, almost 100% of people we spoke to, um, yet so few of them actually were. So it was a really interesting problem to delve into. 
That's so interesting that almost 100% of, of the people you talked to wanted to be an investor. What was their kind of thinking behind it? Yeah, I think it's just this aspirational um, thing, really. Like, there was a few things that came through about what an investor means to people. Like, a, an investor, uh, if you're investing, it's, there's an element of success there. Um, it means you've probably got some money that you can do something additional with. It means you might be able to set yourself up for a good future. Um, so, yeah, aspiration is basically the word we tied to it with this, you know, this feeling of something I might want to be. So it's almost like a lifestyle product, um, the, the investing, because that's people see uh, the term investor um, like like it does signify a bit of a, a bit of a lifestyle, and they want to move towards that. Yeah, uh, it's it's been such an intimidating world. I mean, we've literally created an, a whole massive industry around making this stuff complicated, um, and a lot of the language that's used, uh, I was sort of guilty of it myself, I suppose, having more of um, a background in banking and finance, but. Um, Quite often, it's easy enough just to say it in English, um, and we don't want to. We don't want to create a product that has shares these investors and every other in- investor, so that people can't use other platforms. Or, you know, we're all about having it all. So, um, education became a massive part of what we did during the build. It was um, super important that people could learn without feeling dumb, um, but and and almost without even realizing it. So, we talk a lot about learn by doing when we're building products. So it's you go through there and you start by feeling like you know nothing, but next thing you know, you've made an investment. And you, you probably don't, if someone asks you afterwards, have you learned anything? You would probably say, no, I've just made an investment. But all of a sudden, these, you know, we, we hear of these conversations talking up where people are talking about their investment portfolio or what's happening with um, the US 500 or um, all these types of things that just were probably th- things they would never have a conversation, particularly in New Zealand. Money's quite a taboo topic. Yeah, definitely. And just for people at home who um, don't know what market validation is, uh, market validation is when you've got this idea for a a product or a service or a business and you go out and before you you start to build it uh, and bring it to life, you talk to potential customers and try and validate uh, and make sure that they do have a problem that you can solve in a specific way and that there's money in it. Is that that basically the, the working definition that you guys use when starting sharesies? Yeah, I think for us it was really a problem um, definition statement. Like, is there a problem out there big enough to solve? Uh, and we, we we really tackled that from um, quite a broad mindset. So a lot of the questions we asked were around money generally. Um, we Even though the initial idea was around investing, we didn't narrow it down to that to quite late in the piece. Um so, yeah, it, it is. It's exactly that. It's going out there. It's um, finding out if there's a problem, if, there's, if this is something that people might pay money for. Um, is it something they're interested in doing, mm-hmm. more broadly speaking? Or is it something they want to be better with or want to interact with? Um, and it's something, I mean, um, Sonia's got a really strong background in this stuff. And um, it, all of us were involved in this process right from the start and a long time before any code was written or um, – any investments were thought of or anything like that. We'd, we'd just, we'd literally spoken with hundreds and hundreds of people and, and um, surveyed thousands of thousands of people. And then in our backgrounds, because uh, Brooke used to run a savings and investments portfolio. So she had quite a bit of information on that already as well. Um, I have a retail banking background, same with John. And then on the other side, we had people who had this problem. So even from with a team of seven, you can actually get a pretty good cross section of, um, of what, you know, people might be thinking more broadly outside of that too. That's so interesting. And you know, you're so right, Leighton, that uh, 
that money in general in New Zealand is a bit of a taboo subject. So I'd be really interested to hear, like, what sort of uh, learnings did you come out when talking to, to young professionals or younger people about money and how they manage it or relate to it? Yeah, well, um, I think firstly, we, we didn't have a focus on young people. It wasn't a, um, we talk about engaging the Sharesies generation and the Sharesies generation to us isn't age bound. It's, it's people who, um, who want to do something and interact in a way that, that we are building the platform for. And, um, and as a result, millennials sort of have really hit the mark on that. And most of our customers are younger, most of our investors. Um, but going back to the question, it's, um, it's, the types of questions we were asking came back with where people were getting their information and um, and a lot of it came back to to not knowing enough to even start that conversation so um, which is a particularly interesting one for older people because there's a lot of people you might think um, who would be investors because they might have good jobs doctors or uh, you know or um, accountants lawyers even that we've got using the platform um but the, quite often the other types of people who won't go speak to the financial advisor because they might know them for a start and then that as a result can become quite a daunting experience and you know almost bringing back to i'm expected to know probably do this i don't know how to do this um, and then i have to make myself vulnerable to that conversation um and then for younger people it was um a, a real big thing was either it's inherited so maybe we're scared of money because that's what our family was. I mean, I think there's a real big flow on from the 87 stock market crash. Like New Zealand took a, or would arguably hasn't recovered. We actually just put a uh, research piece out that showed only 20% of New Zealanders are investing in shares. Most of them are over 60 and male Aucklanders. Um, so all this stuff came back to this, this broader broader problem which we narrowed down to money being really hard to talk about and I think it's also something we knew already anyway I mean whoever has a conversation with another Kiwi about investing you don't because it makes you look like a bit of a bit of an egg because it implies that you've got money probably to most people or that you're trying to show that you've got money Um, or that you don't have money and you don't want to have that conversation you're scared like do I have enough for my age or for my position or whatever I'm doing yeah, exactly. Um, so a lot of that stuff is things we know already. No one in New Zealand ever talks about what we're paid, um, and I, and that's not the, you know it's not to say we want people walking around having those conversations every day, but just it, it is a massive part of our life, and and people do worry about it. It's the number one stress for millennials actually is is money problems. So um, giving people this way, you know, showing them this this way forward, particularly now that housing is feeling out of reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that came out of our research, New Zealanders love affair with property. You know, it's really, really, really big. Um, and uh, basically between 20 and 30, most 20-year-olds are still pretty optimistic that they'll be able to have a house in the future. And that literally is just a sliding slope down to 30. And, and you know, there's so many 30-year-olds who feel like that's pipe dream sort of stuff now. So we need to find another way for people to start talking about money and create an instrument like property has for us in the future of building wealth. So um, maybe that's something the share markets can help with. Yeah, definitely. And I can certainly empathize with that, that kind of dichotomy of you don't want to talk about money either because you've got some and people will think you're skiving off or you don't have enough. And so there's, there's no kind of middle ground where people want to talk about it. And if I think about that, I've probably only got two friends that I actually talk about money with and neither of them yeah. are New Zealanders. One's a Scot, Scot and, um, and one's Australian. 
And right. I wasn't the one to bring up the conversation, but they 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 were more than happy to chat about it. So so there we go. Um, but yeah. none of my New Zealand friends would ever would ever kind of talk about that. The other thing that I just want to pick up on was when Sonia said that um, she had $50 and she wanted to start investing. I remember starting um, an ASB share broking account, which um, I never actually used, uh, which is kind of embarrassing. But I remember that the minimum that you had to spend on fees in order to invest was something like $30. So if you were going to invest $50 into shares, really you can only invest $20 into shares and then you've got to get a, a 250% return but just to pay off the fees that you'd be paying um, ASB in order to, to invest those shares. Was that also a problem that you'd kind of identified throughout throughout this process? Yeah, the, the fees actually didn't come up um, as often as, as we might have thought. But I, I think if you really get down to it, it is definitely a barrier. Just, I mean, those numbers you said are, are case in point, right? It means you've got to save a whole bunch before you can make one investment. Certainly one investment that makes sense. Um, and you're sort of burning time often when you're just trying to save. And what do you get for $50 a week in a savings account now? A couple of percent if you're lucky, I'd say. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think um, the big barrier for people was just the perception of how much you needed to be able to invest. So 10000 50000 100000 all these were the numbers that would come mm-hmm. up way more often than $100 or $1,000 or $50 or $5. Um, that was the sort of our starting question of our survey. Was it, you know, if we gave you $50 right now, what would you and you had to spend it on something in the next ten minutes? What would you spend it on? Um, What'd they say? Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, it was all sorts of things like cons- you know that you'd consume on so um, coffee, food, clothes, beer. There was a few people who said they'd save it. Actually, I, I can't remember the exact percent, maybe five percent. Um, but investing didn't come come up once in the the whole survey. So okay. um, it's definitely just wasn't in people's mindset that um, this is something you can do with a small amount of money. And that's a really intimidating barrier. And just think about the risk profile that gives as well. It's like, you know, a lot of people, the first time you hit $10,000, that would be, as an example, if that's what you think the level is, you need to be an investor. And then you have to go risk that. Mm-hmm. Or, or particularly the perceived risk in New Zealand around investing. Um, a classic myth we hear all the time is, um, is people saying they only invest what you can afford to lose. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's just such a pessimistic view of investing. Um, it, it, there's a few basic rules that can really reduce that risk. I mean, if we ever lost all our money from share market investing, we've got some, <laughs> some, some other problems. It's probably the least of our worries, you know. Um, and yet we have this different perception on housing. It feels much safer. And our view on that is because the letterbox doesn't tell you every day when you arrive home whether the house price has gone up or down. Yeah, so it feels more stable because you're only judging um, property investment against what you bought it for and then what you sold it for. And so you're seeing the long-term average growth as opposed exactly. to in shares because it's being reported on every day in the news. You're seeing it go up and down and it feels as if it's changing on, uh, you know, on a daily basis. And it feels like if you get a little bit of red there, you've lost something. Um, you sort of... Um, you really regret those losses way more than you celebrate any win you might get. So, um, yeah, the math is really there. Uh, markets, rightly so, tend to perform much better than property over time, um, certainly savings and all that. But it, to your point, it is a time game, and that's the big thing with investing. And that's why it's so important we get people in the younger, right? Because, like, mm-hmm. you're actually the richest you'll ever be when you're, well, day dot. 
put $5 a week in from day dot, you'll probably never have to worry about money again. Yeah, exactly. So how does it actually work in terms of, you know, how do you make it economical that I can invest $20, $30, $50 a week and it um, and it's not going to cost me as much fees if I went through ASB or whatever? Yeah, the, the one thing, well, the thing we've got really going for our generation is technology. We're, we're the most technology technologically enabled generation ever and as a result things that once were expensive and required someone on the end of the phone or a whole bunch of paperwork or um which probably a lot of the traditional brokers are still using we don't have to do so um it's it is literally just as easy for us to work with a hundred thousand customers as it is 10 customers like the the process would be the same for us day to day so interesting. And I've seen that um, within the Shearsies app because uh, this is almost embarrassing, but I'm a Shearsies customer, but I've never put any money in. I think I paid, you guys had like a, um, you had like an initial offer where if you spent like $20, I think, then or invested $20, then you got an extra $20 or something. So I did that once yeah. and then I kind of forgot about it. This is kind of embarrassing talking to the person who owns it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to use this opportunity to encourage you to get back into it. Well, I was actually just thinking before, I was like, man, this is actually pretty good. I should probably do it. Because there are all these different <laughs> funds that you can kind of invest in that are that are um, – that are targeted to specific like investment types, right? And I yeah, remember right. I saw, I think it was Sonia speaking at an event um, up here in Auckland at The Grid uh, a few months ago. And I remember her talking about how uh, yeah, there is a difference in investment approach for, for younger people than perhaps older people where it's more socially conscious. And so you guys have responded with specific types of funds where uh, I'll let you talk about it because you'll probably speak about it more accurately than I would. Yeah, the impact came through really, really strong as part of that research process as well. So um, it's very hard for someone to think to have a conversation around their financial future um, without also thinking about what the rest of the, f- the future might look like. So as a result, impact investing does become a big thing, and um, it, it's 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 growing globally now. And uh, to be honest, at one point we considered just being an, inv- an impact investment platform. Um, but there's some problems with that because everyone has different values. Uh, everyone has a different idea of what sustainable looks like. Um, uh, and so ultimately we decided let's give people as much information as we can around these investments and let, then let them make the decision. And that almost became an ethical decision for us. It's like our whole platform was about having it all. So mm-hmm. um, you should be able to have the choice to, to go into any of those things. Who are we to say that it's wrong? But we will make sure there's enough information there and, and maybe um, um, where possible really promote that fact that there are, there are those options because we know it's important for people. And are people responding then, to that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, they're popular products as well um, on our platform, popular investments, because rightly so. I mean, I, it's, certain, it's certainly something I care about. Um, and there's really good um, – um, really good analysis coming out now to say that that's going to be where the best returns are in future because there is a generation coming through that cares way more about that. And let's be honest, this risk to the planet probably uh, that we start doing more of this good stuff or what sort of what sort of future are you investing in? Yeah, exactly. Um, I tell you what, and, I've been surprised at how um, at, at how much young professionals are willing to invest or spend on consumer products that have an ethical slant. My um, partner. Just uh, just literally yesterday, spent twenty eight dollars. Get this on a sea sponge, because apparently it is more uh, environmentally friendly than buying a standard loofah. 
uh, and apparently lasts longer. I was like, you're going to spend $28 on a bloody sea sponge. But she did. And so I'm like, maybe the sea sponge business is a great place, good, good uh, area to invest in as well. Um, though I imagine you probably don't have products specifically targeted to, to those types of products. <laughs> no, not yet. But in the future, we, we really want to open up all that stuff, you know. And the other thing that I personally think is really important is investing in the sustainability journey as well. So some people take a real hard line to it, and that's cool. Um, they say, you know, I'm not investing in that because it's bad. And um, um, But sometimes there, there's some, you know, the, the companies can, that can make the most change um, fast are those with a lot of money. So if we can start encouraging them in the right direction by putting pressure through how we invest on governance, on um, the ethical reasons, you know, um, social, all the sort of standard um, ones that we monitor on, I think it's really important that we do that. So, um, and I think sometimes that's a bit of a struggle for people as well. But um, the more that we have people in there, you can sort of end up voting with your dollar, right? That's what's going to be happening. If you're investing in companies and providing them capital, they're going to be the ones that you want to do well. And how are they going to differentiate them from their competitors? And one of the ways is making sure that they are creating a better future. Well, the other thing that's interesting, though, is that if um, if more money is go- is going into investing in environmentally friendly biz- businesses, there are two ways to look at it. The first way is to say, well, that means that arguably if there's more money going towards environmentally friendly businesses, then competition should decrease um, the the earnings per investment uh, dollar invested because those um, – those investments are now becoming more competitive or it's easier for them to, to raise capital, which would mean that uh, less environmentally friendly businesses would ha- would then have higher returns per dollar invested. But then the other way to look at it as well, um, and I'd love to get your take on this actually, I'm a bit of an economics nerd, is that if more capital is, if environmentally friendly businesses find it easier to access capital, then arguably they could they could um, do much better than non-environmentally friendly businesses because they have easier access to capital and don't have to pay the same returns that non-environmentally friendly businesses have to have to pay out. Yeah, um, I'd completely agree with your last statement there. I think capital will cash is why companies how companies grow and access to that capital is so important um and and if that's where people are wanting to invest and it's i mean it's already putting pressure on the markets for more and more companies to do this type of thing uh the second thing is is just more broadly speaking companies make their money by selling goods right so you don't just have to vote in the way you provide capital but ultimately it's choosing the sea sponge um and and paying that bit extra and that is absolutely a trend that we're going to continue to see happening so um we're the same. We always, um, you know, wherever possible, choose that option that might be doing a little less harm. And I personally believe so, it's yeah. changed quite significantly over the last five years. I remember um, a few years ago seeing Malcolm Rands, who um, started uh, the Eco Store, and he said that he went out and he talked to and he did his market validation, and people would say to him, "Yeah, yeah, we we definitely want environmentally friendly, um, sustainable products." But then when he actually put them on the shelf, he he said, "How much extra do you think people would be willing to um, to spend in order to get an environmentally product?" This was about again five years ago. He said zero percent. People weren't willing to pay anything more. But now I look at, yeah. cons- at consumer behavior, even in my own family, and you can see that it's potentially changed. People are willing to spend um, if, if they see it as, mm-hmm. as more sustainable. I mean, even look at New World now, how um, both New World and Countdown are giving up single-use plastic bags because people are demanding it. You know, people are demanding to pay for the less sustainable option. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I um, couldn't agree more. That trend is massive. It's, it's really sweeping um, the globe. 
I think, and you can see why. The more the more and more we see of the, these plastic, you know, the plastics and where they're ending up, how they're impacting the environment, the oceans, um, and everything else to go with that. It's pretty cool. It's about time. Yeah, definitely. Um, hey, can yeah. I ask you about the educational side of your business? Because you've talked about it a little bit. How how, how does Shezies go about um, go about educating people or, or, or who want to become investors? Yeah, so the learn by doing is a is a big part of that. Um, so that's like you, we make it so easy to get in there and invest, and, and well, we aim to make it so easy that you don't even notice that you're learning, and you come away, and you might just add some more words to um, how you speak every now and again like you or you might understand something you hear on the business news or read in the business news or on the paper um but so we've done that in a few ways so um we've done written a lot of blogs uh and we 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 have a big focus on content uh and that's it's not just investing once again it's money as well because they do tie in so closely um and um we try explain some of the the real fundamental principles of, of investing and, and how money works because it, it's actually surprising, you know, things like compound interest and things, um, the ability for money to grow on money and, and how that's not particularly well understood. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say um, we consider education to be a massive part of our business. We sort of focus on three things. So the first one is access. Um, that's you know making it as easy as possible for people to get in and get their money, and I'd say that's what we've really done well in the first part, first year. The, the next part is um, confidence, and that might be more a bit of the advice part. So it's like now that I've got access, how where's the best place to put my dollar? Uh, and the next one is is motivating people to make sure that you keep doing it because that's that's a really important part about it, particularly if you're doing small amounts. It's like the important part becomes doing it regularly. Yeah, well, I saw um, on your website that I, I, almost quite a surprising set that uh, if you invested, I think it was something like $10 a week or $50 a week um, in the NZX over the um, last five years, not only would you have all the money that, that you'd invested, but you would have got a 116% return on that. Yeah. I, I thought that's like more than doubling your money in, in, in five years just by leaving it there. And is that based off putting it in every week? And so arguably the, right. the last $50 you put in didn't get as much of a return from the first $50 you put in. So it's almost all from um, from the, the first year or two that you, that, that you put in and was able to significantly increase yeah. its value on. Potentially over the last five years. But, I mean, even then there's been that roller coaster, right? So the whole the whole – our whole way is the dollar cost averaging investment strategy, which is uh, time in the markets and not timing the markets. And that means if so, if you're buying $50 a week, then you will sometimes buy where it's a little more expensive and sometimes buy when it's much cheap, much more cheap, you know? And, um, and I think that's one of the things we really try to teach our investors is because if you're really well diversified, then um, as prices go down, that's, that you can flip it on its head and not be that sad about it and see it as a really good opportunity to buy something that's on sale. Mm-hmm. So what was that investment uh, strategy you just mentioned? That's dollar cost averaging. And what's that, what's that all about? So that's exactly that's the regular investing amounts of money that you can afford over time, and the so the um, dollar cost averaging is just effectively means that you end up with an average price over time. So you're not trying to sell when it's high or buy when it's low, because we know that people aren't very good at that. Most hedge fund managers and stuff, I can't remember what the stat is, but it's something crazy like only twenty percent um, of of the the funds that were in the top this year um, will still be in the top next year it's like 
normally there's an inverse relationship to that. So, of course, there's good managers out there, and, and that's a good option probably as part of the further diversification part. But really, the, the proven point or the more, more safe option, I suppose, has been just investing regularly over time and not worrying about it too much because humans tend to make bad decisions on that type of thing. Again, just write, writing out the um, the the parts where where you might think, oh, I want to I want to you know ease off a little bit because it's a it's it's a really expensive time to buy or it's a really bad time to buy. Um, yeah. But just writing it out and having confidence that uh, about the long term average, just like we would with our house, we don't try and buy and sell it you know all the time you know you just mm. write it out and i suppose that's because there there are there are costs and involved with moving if you wanted to do that or um there are yeah, lots of reasons you wouldn't do that yeah. logistically it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a full-time job to worry about that stuff you know like you you have to be really involved in thinking about it and understand what's going on what the drivers are um and or if not a full-time job, something you have to be very enthusiastic about to keep on doing. And, and, make, and I, I just don't think, well, we know from our research that most people aren't. So if you're not um, re- that real keen on it, so why bother with the stress? And, and, and there's been over the last five years, really, I mean, we're in a real bull market. You know, the market's going really well. It's quite buoyant. It's been steady increases year on year. Um, and, and at some point, of course, it'll, it'll go down again a little bit. But if you had decided three or four years ago when people first started saying the markets are as high as they're going to be, you would have missed out on some absolutely crazy returns over the last four years. Yeah, I, it's, yeah. All, it's even like I um, remember reading an article, for, I think it was from Rodney Hyde, and he was talking about, it might not have been Rodney Hyde, I might have just told a, told a lie on, on air, but that's okay, um, about that he's thought for the last 20 years or something that that the Auckland property market was going to significantly decrease, um, but it never has. And so, uh, uh, you know, that we should just give up on trying to predict what the markets are going to do, whether they're (laughs) going to go up or down, because they are naturally unpredictable and and can be flung into disarray by Mm -hmm. black swans like um, banks falling over in America, which then affects the New Zealand share market and things that we just cannot predict. But the interesting thing I'd also say about shares is that you guys have gone um, the, the typical model for, for making money um, when brokering investments is to take a commission um, specifically off the um, both of what we, when you make that investment and then when the investment does well but you guys have gone for a subscription model yeah we have um, and we did that for a couple of reasons firstly we wanted to make it as accessible as possible for people to invest with low amounts of money um, and we also needed to be able to run a business off it so effectively we you know the technology element to our business is really really big um, and of course we still have some more traditional finance models we make money in three ways actually so the the second way is the investments pay for it um, to be distributed on our platform uh, and the third way is when people have money sitting in their wallets on the Sharesies, um app. We uh, earn interest on that, a small amount. So at the moment, by far, the subscription line is our main revenue line. Um, and, yeah, the rationale for that was was simple. It's like to make it accessible, then it has to be cheap enough for people who want to do it, and it has to align with other things they use in their day-to-day lives. And a lot of people use um, subscription apps and technology all over the show now, so that makes maybe Sharesies feel a little, a little less intimidating. That's so interesting that the subscription side of it makes 
the vast the bulk of of your revenue because it's so cheap it's like a dollar fifty um uh, i think if you've got under three grand um see i actually yeah. did the research if you're under three grand it's like a dollar fifty a month or something yeah it's, yeah it's really cheap it is ridiculously cheap how do you keep the cost so low um technology same thing again we rethought everything really so we sort of questioned everything we were told as we went through this process and none of us had a background in broking or anything like that and that really enables you to look at things with a fresh set of eyes and maybe things that would restrict you if you were in this industry for a long time because they've become things you can't look past because that's what you know them to be we could do differently so um yeah i don't think there's any other word for that really than just using technology in the best way to make this accessible for people yeah and it it almost surprises me how how um no it's not surprising actually it's it's obvious that you need to rely on technology since you've got so many founders within the business because there are about seven of you right so how, yeah. how does that work when most most you look at most um startups and they might have one or two founders maybe three but seven is such a, a massive number what how does that change the dynamics of starting a business you know, we got tried to people tried to talk us out of this actually a lot. I'd say it was one of the more contentious things when we were going through the accelerator and raising capital and things. But ultimately, we're like, we need experts in technology. We need ex, we were in financial technology, so we need experts in the financial part, experts in the technology part, experts in the design part, and the product part, um, and. And really, I just can't see a way that this could have worked, particularly at the price point and stuff without that. Like, um, out of those seven people, as founders, you make, you hope to make uh, any money out of this by long-term gain. It's just like Shazies, we're all about the long game here. So um, you sort of say goodbye to your market salary and all that type of thing. And and um, and I just, I just honestly can't see how this could ever have worked without the founding team that we had. So I just think it was a real strength to answer your question. I think if we just had the technology, then maybe we'd be lagging somewhere on the, the, the huge amount of regulation side or the financial side that comes into this. And if we just had the financial regulation side, it would be so expensive for people to use. And I guess the other thing is that Shoes uh, is quite impressive by the, uh, uh, the number of partners that you've got and the quality of partners that you've got helping you out building this uh, platform. Like I see you've got Craig's investment partners. You guys have some sort of deal with the NZX? Yep. Yeah. So we have, uh, NZX Smart Shares distribute their products on our platform. Um, yep. We we have Pathfinder. So they're the I think they're the only so um, that is all they do is socially responsible investment. Um, we have yeah. We use Craig's Investment Partners as our brokers. I, I will say the industry was extremely supportive of having us there. I think everyone knows it's. I mean, it's going to be good for everyone, right? If we've only got twenty percent of New Zealanders investing right now. Um, you just have to double that number and imagine what we could do with our capital markets and the type of growth that could help with our country and um, the opportunities that that could provide in the future. So I think everyone was on board with a platform like us getting started. So that, that wasn't a hard sell at all. Oh, true. Because I was going to almost ask whether that was um, down to having the large amount of founders who could tap into their various networks, especially if they were quite well networked down in, down in Wellington since it's quite a, quite a, a relatively small city. Yeah, yeah, and huge support there as well. So we do obviously know a lot of people. Um, we all have reasonably strong backgrounds in what in what we're, um, you know, what, what we're sort of responsible for in the business, I guess. So um, all of that things, all of that stuff comes together. But 
it's hard to say. I mean, those relationships were really important, but I think the, the network in Wellington is so supportive anyway, mm-hmm. and all these companies were open for a chat. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think that we should hold anyone back if they don't think they've got the right contacts. You know, I think it's it's just a matter of getting out there and asking people, telling them your idea, and you'll be surprised at how on board people can become, particularly if you've got a really clearly defined problem statement that people can understand. And the other thing is that you tied it back to an industry-wide problem about how many uh, how many Kiwis actually do invest or um, are active within the market. And so if you can increase that by 10%, then it's going to have, as you mentioned, great flow and effects for, for everybody. I always think that when, when companies start, the best it comes a little bit back to um, Simon Sinek's kind of like golden circles and why and all of this stuff. But yeah. addressing an industry-wide problem that affects everybody and trying to solve that will, will naturally, because, uh, because people have a stake in the industry-wide problem, they'll be more willing to help you out. Yeah, completely. Hey, let me ask you this. You, you talked about that we shouldn't let, um, that we shouldn't let not having contacts put, put, put us off from starting a business. Um, the other question that I had was you've emphasized a, a lot about the technology side of Sharesies. How did you go about managing the investment into all of this, um, the, the application development? Because I'd imagine that it'd be quite expensive. So how do you get the funding to, 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 to go out and, and invest in these digital platforms that have been so essential to, to starting Shazies? Well, founding team was a big part of that. So we built everything ourselves. Um, you know, right at the start, it was the, um, well, it started with seven of us and then six of us ended up going full time. Um, and, and there's, there's not really much aside from that at the, at the start. And then once we, um, got into, so there's a whole bunch of other things. Eventually, I mean, you can't run on no money forever. So we all had a period of time where we, about four months for me, where we weren't paid anything just to get started. And then eventually you start to create a story and people get excited about the opportunity. So they want to invest in you as a company as well. So, uh, we did through, we did raise some capital. At, um, early on, in fact, we, we raised a little bit before we had any any investors because we'd got done that market research. We'd gone out and we'd started to build a bit of a social following, mm-hmm. um, and we've got some of these partners on board as well. So, um, yeah, that's a really important thing of, of being a growth business. Like, a, and what I mean by growth business is someone that, you know all of our money invests in growth. Really, like bringing on customers or investors, education of investors, um, and platform development and things. And we so we, we were really lucky, and we got well supported in that world as well. Um, and that's that's completely an opportunity that we want to open up for other people in the future, um, as well, because we think you know there's so many cool investment opportunities out there, and there's no reason why the buy-ins should be so high now because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it was it only came about because it was too hard, really. Okay. Interesting. That's the, yeah. So um, that's cool. And now we've got a bit of a team behind us as well. So there are 13 of us now, actually. So um, it's really cool. Oh, awesome. And was building that, that technology out expensive? Um, well, I mean, expensive in, that, in the time, yes, that we put in. And if you were paying everyone market rates, then, yeah, mm-hmm. horrifically expensive probably. But <laughs> because no one was being paid, the actual yeah, yeah. dollars changing hands wasn't too bad. Oh, so you've got developers in your, in your founding team. Yes, yeah, so two of our okay. founders are devs. That's oh, that's right. definitely, definitely helpful in bringing that down as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, extremely clever. I, I mean, we're dealing with people's money, right? Mm, so it's got to be up. secure. You know, no, because yeah. that would that, uh, attract uh, some big headlines in the Herald. If you yeah, so we've got, so we've got um, 
so the founding, we've got Martin and um, Richard who are technical founders. We've got Ben who's design, um, Sonia more from the product sort of angle, and then um, Brooke who's the CEO, and I'm sort of covering the operations and the investment side of it. Awesome. Hey, last last question before we start to wrap up. What's been the most successful way in attracting customers to the, to, to joining the platform? Um, I mean, we had we got really good traction through the problem, just asking people if they wanted to be investors and if they wanted to do it for a low amount of money through social platforms and create a bit of a movement there. Um, and then from then, I, I think most of our acquisition comes from people telling their friends about it. Um, I think it definitely helps that the markets have had a good year. I mean, the, the returns have been really good. Like some of our investments are up 50%, which is crazy. Um, and I mean, of course, there's some that aren't up at all as well, but most people go and have a little bit of everything, and that's the way the platform's designed. Um, and then, I, um, you know, we wanted to become part of the, I think it was, it was the Trade Me Story one, which was they were sold over the barbecue, right? Like people telling people about it. And mm-hmm. I think that's definitely happened with us as well. So, um, and we encourage that. We're trying to break down that. It sort of all nicely works into our business model, I guess, mm-hmm. in that. Um, we want to break down the debut around money and get people to start talking about it. You no longer look like a dick if you're talking about investing because you can do it with $5 for sharesies. So, you know, there's a bit of a conversation started there and then next thing you know, people start joining. So it's been really exciting. I think we're about 19,000 investors now, which is probably quite exceeded our expectations. How, how far, how many did you expect to have at this point? Um, I, I honestly can't remember the number off my top off the top of my head, but um, a lot of people were trying to keep our expectations in check. Let's put it that way. I think we were, we were probably pretty ambitious uh, and aspirational, so we were. I guess we, we we sort of had these these big numbers in mind, but when we had some awesome advisors and stuff who really told us how hard this can be um, and reset expectations and. I think that was really awesome because it's made our story better ultimately. And then um, we've also got we've had what you know over twenty million dollars of people's money invested through our platform now, and um, it's quite a lot of trust. That, those We're are, really proud of that. Those are big numbers. That's what's that? There's that about uh, what's what's twenty mil divided by twenty thousand? Is that like a thousand per person? Thousand per person. Yeah, but the average investment is thirty dollars. So about thirty dollars a week is what people do on average. That's amazing. And how many of those 19,000 are, are active investors contributing every every week or every month or however long? Yeah, the, I mean, we definitely have people come in um, and just do one-offs, and there's been some quite large one-offs as well, okay. actually, um, because the platform's cheap whether you've got money or you don't have money. Um, and we have no restriction on how much you can put in. But um, So our lowest deposit, for example, has been in one cent. And the highest has been $100,000, so quite round numbers at the moment, aren't they? Um, but, oh, yeah, most people are using it as it's sort of been designed, which is really pleasing for us, uh, investing regularly. Um, yeah, it's it's so interesting. Yeah, those, are, those are really impressive numbers. Hey, look, Leighton, I really appreciate you coming on to, onto the show this morning and sharing a little bit about your um, your journey with Sharesies. Is there anything else that you want to leave the audience with this morning? No, I just well, I, I think if you're listening and you haven't given it a go, then do. Um, not just to support sharesies, but I think you'll you know probably hopefully learn something out of it. And we we love feedback as well. And I think this audience will hopefully be right in the in the target mark for us of where we like getting that feedback from. So um, yeah, give it a go. Um, be an investor. Um, you probably want to be based on our research. We know that. So if you're not, give it an nudge and 
um, and uh, yeah, share it with friends because I think it's 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 good for everyone to do. And what's the website there, Layden? Uh, Sharesies.com. Fantastic. So, well, I really appreciate you coming on to the show, and I'm sure that listeners will, will get a lot of value out of this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Ed, and awesome to catch up with you again after so long. I know, it's been too long. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand.